Hey everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the Cisco Tax Security Podcast, where we talk about all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, hot issues, and other stuff about Cisco security. Uh, with us today is our very popular Back by Demand guest, Mr. Joe Clark. How's it going, Joe? Good. Thanks. Good. Excellent. And we've got Mr. David White. How's it going, David? Fantastic, Jay. So before we get started with this episode, which is about network management best practices in the context of Cisco Live, which uh, should be very entertaining to our users, let's talk about uh, the first thing I want to bring up, which is our our listener, Marku, uh, brought up an issue with our podcast feed. Apparently, the XML feed does not conform to RFC 2822 date time format, and that was causing his reader... Which we all knew off the top of our heads, That's right. RFC... What but was that again? 2822. Uh, so the problem was the XML feed, the date time format wasn't correct as per the standard, and it was causing um, his device to not be able to play the stream. And also, I think other people were probably affected by the same thing. So we fixed it, fixed it today, pushed the change live. So hopefully, Marku, you should be able to listen to the feed. Uh, sorry about that problem. We should conform to the RFC, I think. And what exactly was wrong with it, Jay? What was wrong? At the very end of the RFC 2822 date time standard, you're supposed um, the old method was you gave the time zone in the time zone code, like PST, EDT, whatever, but that's now uh, deprecated. You use the GTC offset now. So we didn't update and use the format just prescribed by the newer RFC. Correct. And then yes. I ran the XML feed through an RSS feed uh, checker. Checker, and there were a bunch of errors. Uh-oh. <laughs> a lot of other errors, including, uh, well, whatever. Anyway, uh, not all of them have been fixed, but most of them have been fixed. So anyway. Um, That's a fix-on-failure type of entry. It's a fix-on-fail. So so other listeners can call in and let us know if they're having any problems getting our podcast through the RSS. Yeah, if there's a really an issue, you know, let us know because it's a pain to update it, unfortunately. Um, and then another update to the podcast is our new logo. Dave, why don't you tell us about the logo since you worked so hard on it? Oh, yes. Uh, logo master, yes. So we Graphic have logos, artists. that's right, and uh, we wear shirts for the podcast. And some of the listeners that have seen us live and in person might have been able to get a limited edition polo shirt with our logo on it. Well, our podcast in uh, the the iTunes store and on the iPhones never had our official logo. And so I bugged Jay about this all the time. And Apple would send this email saying our logo has to be 1,400 by 1,400 yeah, bytes. Yeah, I didn't actually do anything about it until Apple said, essentially, we're going to kick you off the, the well, podcast. Well, they kept telling us that. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm like, Jay, what are we doing? So apparently the, the logo has to be a nice retina 1,400 by 1,400 display. So I said, uh, Dave, you know, you need to go and can you take your logo and make it 1,400 by 1,400 pixels, which is huge. I don't understand, but whatever. Yeah, and of course, this logo was made in you know nothing else other than PowerPoint because that's what we have to do presentations in. And when you scale it up to that size, the nice rectangle combined with circles and ellipses doesn't look so great. So then manual pixel by pixel you know, image manipulation to, to fill in a little of the... the you know, weird spaces. Well, but I think I think it looks good. So, uh, so everyone, check it out. Check it out and let, let us know. know. Yeah, if there's something good, or maybe somebody can, out there can fix the pixels. And yeah, <laughs> send it send it in for us. But uh, anyway, so let's. Uh, hey, that's a great idea. In fact, if someone fixes the logo and makes it look even better, I might be inclined to send you limited edition Tax Security Podcast Polo shirt. There you go. Challenge has been initiated to the internet. And, and let me just say that that's one of the best shirts I have. I, I wear it <laughs> quite regularly. I was uh, visiting a university in Greece recently, and I, I donned that shirt for one of the days I was presenting. It's very comfortable. So definitely fix their logo. 
Okay, well, uh, we appreciate it. So let's get started. Today we're going to talk about network management best practices. We wanted to talk to Joe, uh, bring him back on the show to talk about some of, the, some of the other things he does here at Cisco. He focuses on network management, but in the context of Cisco Live, because if you attend Cisco Live, the network is run by volunteers, and Joe is one of the main guys who's in charge. So uh, we wanted to bring him in to talk about Cisco Live, what he does at Cisco Live, and L, uh, the different products he uses. Yeah, and, you know, just to tee this up a little bit more, you know, Joe's going to let us know how many switches um, are deployed, and even in the, the time frame in which we're de- deployed, it's really amazing. You know, there was, I think, close to 20,000 attendees there. You know, most of them had one or two wireless devices, right? All the classrooms, if you attended, were, you know, had wired Ethernet ports, and all that is brought in, you know, two days before the event. So they have to extremely quickly build up an entire large-scale network in a matter of two days and make it fully functional, operational, have monitoring on it. And so we thought it might be of interest to you all to see, you know, what tools do they use to do that, right? How do they ensure consistency across devices? How do they monitor it, right? And and there's a lot of nuggets of knowledge that can be applied to everyone's networks. Yep, thanks. Uh, Two days seems uh, pretty extreme. And in fact, we do a lot of pre-show staging in San Jose months before the show begins. In fact, the wireless network and a lot of the access network and certainly the core are all staged. But when we get on site, we don't have a lot of days to put this together. And we had uh, hundreds of switches, of of access layer switches, 600 access points that we had to put in, uh, redundant cores, redundant distribution networks. We had to work with the vendor uh, at at the convention center to use some of their infrastructure. So it's a both political and, and technically challenging thing. And, and David, as you pointed out, monitoring is a key point of that. Cisco has uh, quite a few uh, network management applications that excel in this. We chose to use Cisco Prime infrastructure this year for our monitoring. It provided us uh, syslog information and it provided us uh, poll-based uh, event management uh, that we were able to use to identify specifically when devices had gone down. We had to pick our battles uh, when monitoring, and for us it was about making sure all of the access layer switches were up because those connected to our access points and also allowed our vendors to come on the show. So we were able to quickly identify when those had gone down and then send some of our Network Academy students out there to triage the situation and then report back, and we had remote access to fix a lot of those problems. Now, how were you notified that there was a problem through Prime Infrastructure? Prime Infrastructure does two things. One, it can look at syslog messages, so we can look at all of the high-severity syslog messages that come up, but it also does uh, poll-based fault management. And what we would do every day is come in and look at the event log or event viewer in Prime Infrastructure. We would filter on switches, and we would look for operationally down or unreachable messages for those switches. And any time we saw one of those, we would get one of our runners, usually a Network Academy student, they would go out to the location, and we named all of our switches based on where they were deployed in the venue, and they would figure out what was wrong. And sometimes it was the vendor unplugged the switch when they left the previous night. Other times we had some cabling problems, and we would work through those. And what about, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm sure, because I know based on past Cisco Lives, that you also got email notification and page notifications when critical problems occurred. Is that also we, set up? We, we we also used um, an automated action feature. This was in Cisco Prime Land Management Solution uh, to be notified if there were critical issues with the uh, core of the network. 
anytime there was a problem uh, reaching, we actually didn't get any this year, but we did test the system. Anytime we got a, a critical error in our core distribution, yeah, we were uh, sending email to uh, some of the, uh, us on the network management side and then the guys who were running the core network as well. Were there any interesting problems that cropped up that you were able to track and then mitigate using these tools? Yeah. First of all, I want to say that the network this year uh, worked very well. Uh, and People who've been to Cisco Live in years past may have remembered some more systemic network-related problems. This year we didn't really have any of that, but what we were seeing were a, a lot of uh, switches that just were taken off of the network, not stolen or anything, but they would get unplugged or they would... Um, we, we would have some cabling problems because this year we used layer two services from the event, from the venue, mm. um, and that was an interesting challenge. So we would oftentimes see a switch go away, and what had happened was someone had switched a cable in the closet, uh, in, in, in the closet on uh, our vendor network, and we would have to call them in and have them uh, fix the patch cabling. But we would always get the switch showing up in the uh, event viewer display. On the core, we didn't see any problems. We had consistent uptime the entire part of the show, so much so that we thought it would be fun to send some proactive statistics, and we used uh, the embedded event manager feature that we talked about in a previous episode here, and we tweeted from the uh, distribution of the network. So the core, uh, sorry, the distribution 6500 was sending tweets about, hey, I know, I learned these MAC addresses, I... My temperature is this, uh, and, and we had a lot of followers. In fact, the Switch had more friends than I do. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's kind of the Wild West because a lot of our equipment that we're using for the show is exposed. You know, it's sitting mm -hmm. there in the room because the labs have to connect to it, or the APs are right out there amidst everything else. So I'm sure you've got some, you know, people kicking cables accidentally, or, you know, you do your best, but... Um, you were able to spot those uh, situations going down pretty quick using these tools. Well, the one thing that we wanted to do, because of what you just said, we have a physical connectivity potential problem there because switches are out. We wanted to make sure we had some best practice configuration deployed everywhere. And, and David, you mentioned consistency at the top of the show. We use Cisco Prime Land Management Solution to deploy a consistent, first of all, version of software, um, that, that we had across all of our access layer so that if a bug was going to hit us, it was going to hit us everywhere, but there weren't going to be any surprises. There weren't going to be bugs that we didn't test for cropping up because we were using inconsistencies. And we had a consistent and audited version of a config, meaning we put out things like port security, DHCP snooping, and storm control to prevent any sort of not malicious, but usually accidental uh, incursion in the network. If someone were to accidentally plug in a switch or plug in where they shouldn't have been, we weren't going to see a, a network-wide event there. And what were we doing about, you know, malicious people, right? People coming in and, and, you know, maybe it's not always malicious, but, you know, they have rogue APs that they install, which can be, you know, um, some of our partners that are putting stuff in the world of solutions, or it could be people actually trying to do malicious things. So, how were we detecting and, and what were we doing there? Sure. So talking with APs at first, we didn't actively try to kill rogues. Uh, we did monitor them with Cisco Prime Infrastructure. And anyone who came by our network operations center, we had the uh, Prime Infrastructure heat map up that uh, mapped every floor of the venue and showed you a, a nice map, especially in the world of solutions, of where we had rogues. Not just uh, 802.11 rogues, but Bluetooth rogues. And you could see where there was that signal interference. 
we proactively went out to all the vendors as they were setting up and we told them what channels to be on so that we're, we're okay if you bring in an AP, but please try to be on these channels. That way you won't cause interference. And the way 802.11 works, we had to space the channels out to, to make sure they weren't overlapping. And vendors generally complied with that. They were glad to be able to use it, their own wireless, and, and they were happy to, to use it in a way that would not interfere. Then in terms of other network access, we had our... Um, a remote operations team, the RMS and the ROS team, that were monitoring uh, NetFlow events that were coming off of our ASA. So our ASA would send logging format uh, messages using the IP fix protocol, and they were being tracked by this um, uh, by our RMS solution back in Austin, Texas, and they were doing auditing of security attacks on the network, and we were getting uh, attacks on our public IP addresses from various countries around the world. Uh, trying to to look for weaknesses in our network. And that's a standard service that really any customer can get yeah. if they want to subscribe Absolutely. to remote RMS, remote management mm-hmm. operations or services. Um, so we were sending them, you said NetFlow, I think you're also sending them syslogs too, is that not right? Yes, syslogs and the, the uh, ASA can send, uh, you guys would know more than I do on this, but in a NetFlow type of version of format, it can send uh, traffic. But yes, we were also sending a lot of syslog messages yeah. at this <laughs> system. What, cool. those, and those attacks were just scanning attacks, I guess, coming inbound on the Internet, just yes. search, searching out what's open? and. Well, we, we had a lot of our services uh, put out on a DMZ, and before we locked down the protection, we were getting the, the most common thing we saw, and I'm sure many of, of your listeners see it, is an SSH suite, yeah. where you would look in the logs and you would see failed password for root, failed password for DHCP, failed password mm-hmm. for bin, all of the typical users you'd see on like a Linux system were scanned, and, and of course they all failed because we were using some serious password policies as well. Let's talk about IPv6 for a second. Sure. So I know it's something that, you know, last year, last year Cisco Live, I think, was the first time we you know, offered full IPv6 support. Um, and we did a lot of monitoring of IPv6 mm-hmm. to see how much traffic we were getting and what the adoption looked like. What did we see this year, and how much did it grow over the last year? This year, IPv6 wasn't as big in the show, not because people aren't using it, but because uh, we didn't do as much with IPv6 this year. Um, honestly, that stemmed from the who was working on the core teams. Uh, but what we've used for IPv6, same thing we, we use every year. We we have SNMP and CLI pollers that pull out statistics, and we look at the NetFlow data. So you wouldn't see as much IPv6 traffic this year, even though we were doing it. We, we, we did have Slack running on our, uh, on our network link, so people were getting IPv6 out in the main part of the show, not in the world of solutions. They were getting addresses, and we were they were able to get to IPv6 capable either dual stack or only hosts on the internet and so we had a full feed we just weren't doing as much like we weren't doing that 6.4 um, that we were doing in previous years but how many customers were actually leveraging ipv6 oh uh, quite a bit uh, and not maybe consciously because these days all of the apple was the leading device yeah, at the show yeah and and ipv6 is enabled by default exactly on iphones and, yeah. and so we since Apple was by far the leading um, on iPad, we, we did see a lot of IPv6-capable n- nodes. Only They were only able to hit sites like Google, Cisco.com, anyone who had an IPv6 uh, dual stack because we weren't doing, like I said, any of that. But we still see a, saw a significant um, increase in client devices. Oh, in client count, over, yes. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't talking so much about the core, okay. but more... Our attendees, right? What percentage of them were now attempting to use IPv6, consciously or not? 
Um, we had at one point 13,000 wireless clients associated with the network, and of them, more than half had, were IPv6 capable. I think we, we saw about 70% had IPv6 addresses um, handed out to them. That's fantastic. That's inter- that trend's going to continue. I wonder yeah. what our conversation in five years is going to Our conversation be. in five years will be, does anyone remember IPv4? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. How um, many, when was the last time you guys discussed Apple Talk or IPX on the exactly. show? Exactly. So, Joe, um, what are you? You think some top level um, knowledge nuggets that we might be able to share with customers that you, we've learned, we've you know seen from Cisco Live during the network deployment that might be applicable to them? Say, in a case where they acquire a company or they acquire a building which has infrastructure already in place and they need to roll out a network, right? And we talked about. You know, we pre-stage some of our gear and test it. You know, the core we pre-stage, we test some of the APs ahead of time and, and switches. But, you know, we design a template, and then once we get on site, we actually have to go and physically drop these things in all these different rooms across this very large venue, connect them up, and, and then determine if they're in the right location or not and if they're in the right spot providing the right service that they're supposed to be providing. Great question and some some sense observation. We did a few things at Cisco Live to make this a little bit easier on ourselves. First of all, it does help to know the venue, but uh, Cisco Prime Infrastructure and Cisco Prime LMS offer a discovery capability, which if I were going into, if I had acquired a company and they had existing infrastructure, existing equipment, it's good to know what's out there, and that's the first thing you need to do. And as we deployed switches at Cisco Live, we continually ran this discovery process to find what new devices were added into the network. we couldn't obviously figure out exactly what room they were in at that point, but at least we know they were coming up. And we had, as I mentioned, different networks because we were using the Layer 2 services from the venue. We also had a network in the world of solutions and then a main show network. To cope with that, we leveraged EEM again, the Embedded Event Manager, on the devices, and they auto-detected what network they were on and provisioned themselves for that network. So we knew that if Discovery found these switches coming up, they were at least on a network we could manage, and then we could look back using CDP to figure out what closet they were connected into. And that reduced our scope of where these switches could physically be. So in a, a company that had some sort of a logical assignment of uh, distribution frames, meaning we knew what closets served what floors or we knew what closets served what rooms, we could at least figure out approximately where the, the switches were physically um, once we were able to discover and learn about everything that's out there. And then I would say once you've got that initial inventory, one thing that you would definitely want to do as, as a customer absorbing this type of equipment is make sure everything is consistently provisioned in terms of credentials that you have secure and known access to all of these devices so that you're not um, potentially having weak passwords or anything that that you forget to rotate periodically. You mentioned consistency was a big part of what was really successful this year. So I guess that's around consistency on the image Mm -hmm. and then, like you said, access methods. Um, So that's a lesson learned, I guess, from the previous. What about lessons learned from this year? What are you going to do differently next year? I Even though the Layer 2 services worked really well, I, I think it added a layer of, of complexity that uh, hopefully either we can improve on, meaning there another group of people we had to talk to, so it would be nice not to have to, to do that. The other thing I, I would like to do is look at a new technology we've got coming up called plug-and-play for doing zero-day deployment. Uh, this year we, we 
we essentially did a little bootstrap config that was applied uh, manually. Next year, what I'd like to do is have that all deployed via uh, DHCP and TFTP as part of uh, plug and play, and so it's a lot easier to rapidly provision these switches. Again, giving that consistency, but doing it even more uh, in an even more automated fashion. And just a couple more stats, I guess, to round this out. Um, so I was just looking over some of the uh, event summary. 28 terabytes mm-hmm. of data transmitted through the week out to the ISP. That, that's, you know, a lot for just a week. Um, you mentioned, you know, there's 673 access points controlled by 12. Um, we'll see 5508 mm-hmm. controllers. Um, 13,000 active Wi-Fi associations each day. Uh, 5,500 attendees connected to Wi-Fi during the keynote alone, during the Chambers keynote, uh, with average download speeds in excess of four megs. So that's wow. that's, that's pretty good. It was a very well, very well engineered and put together network, and it, it's important to note that as we were collecting statistics, we got up to terabytes of traffic on the wireless network alone. Um, so a lot of the traffic that we saw was certainly switched on wired, a lot of the video streaming, but it's impressive to see just how reliable, robust, and used the wireless network was. I, I like the fact that Twitter shut down our hashtag of CLUS yes. after oh, 1.2 million tweets during John Chambers' keynote. Yep. Very nice. Wow. And it uh, looks like we handled uh, 690 million DHCP request for leases and uh, 122 million DNS lookups with a reliability of 99.9999%. Yep. That's four nines, folks. And, and no loss of uptime. So all, all of our core and distribution switches uh, were up the entire uh, week. We did not have to reboot once. Of course, access switches went down, but the core and distribution were solid. Well, with that, I would like to say uh, once thanks, Joe, for helping ha- letting yeah, us thanks, have a rock-solid Cisco Live this year. And also, congratulations to both you and Jay for obtaining Cisco Live 2013 Distinguished Speaker Honors, oh, which goes to the top 5% of all speakers. Um, yeah. Back at you. I hear you as well receive that honor. Well, well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, thanks a lot to Joe Clark for coming in and talking to us about a little behind-the-scenes look at the network at Cisco Live. Uh, it was a great success this year. I always like when I'm at Cisco Live, you can judge how things are going with the network by how quick, how much sleep Joe how has much had. sleep Joe's had and how quickly he's walking from like or running from A to B. So he's uh, he was looking pretty uh, relaxed this year. So that's a sign things were going well. So thanks again for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Podcast. Email us or email Joe with your questions at securityshow at cisco.com. And you can find us at www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast where you can view our updated logo from Mr. David White. Thanks a lot.